broadening our picture of reality, you know, that um, our life is not endless, that um, uh, everyone we love will frustrate us, um, that our children will, you know, need to disrespect us at a certain stage in order to develop the energy to eventually leave us and start a life of their own. That This is all part of reality and, and therefore not something to kick against in a kind of ill-tempered way. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Alain de Baton is the closest thing Western society has to a secular priest. Born in Switzerland, raised in Britain, he's written books on Proust, travel, architecture, religion, sex, art, the news and love. In 2008, Alain founded the School of Life, an educational company that offers advice on life issues like achieving calm, having better relationships and making sense of a messy world. Its videos with titles like How to Get Attention Without Attention Seeking, The Importance of Kissing, The Charms of Unavailable People, and Why You Don't Need to Be Exceptional have been viewed hundreds of thousands of times. His new book is titled The School of Life. Alain, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you so much. What an honour for me. Now, you were raised in uh, Switzerland and uh, Britain. What got you interested in philosophy? Um, Broadly speaking, I was interested in working out who I was, how my mind functioned. And um, I looked around for tools. And like many bookish teenagers, um, I fell into the kind of books that that sought to explain both me and the world. And um, that was everything from, you know, Hermann Hesse to um, Freud to... Uh, some philosophers. But, you know, I was the typical, and still remain in many ways, the typical confused teenager asking overly large <laughs> questions in order to learn how to help myself. It's all, it's all for me, really. I'm just trying to help myself. Were there key works in your, uh, in your upbringing that made an impact on you? Do you remember the first philosopher you read? Um, I remember Alice Miller's, uh, the psychoanalyst Alice Miller's um, book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. I remember that having a big impact on me. Um, I remember, and that's really, it's a sort of introduction really to psychotherapy and to mm. how people get messed up by their parents. Um, that had a big impact. Uh, I remember reading Freud and, and being impacted. I remember reading Nietzsche and being impacted. I remember reading Proust and, and having a big impact. These, these were all authors who in different ways, very different ways, gave me a kind of vocabulary for um, f- for learning to put names onto different bits of my mind, you know, and, and, and the world, really. Um, so, and I think, you know, that's what, that's why we need literature, broadly speaking. We need literature to kind of, to give us a, a map of the territory. And, and, and so that, that's what it was for me. You did your MPhil at King's College and then started a, a PhD in French philosophy at Harvard, um, but decided not to pursue it. Uh, what caused you to uh, uh, to give up what I assume would have been a, an academic path at that stage? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, I think that um, I love 
what academics read and the material with which they build their works, but I don't really like the way in which they communicate only with each other to a very narrow audience in a kind of specialized language. So I was always a populist. And the reason is that some of the people I loved most um, never got a formal education. And I, I had a formal education, very good education, and I didn't want to lose touch with people that I loved. I didn't want my learning to cut me off emotionally. And so it felt very important to be able to build a bridge between, as it were, the world of love and the world of ideas. And then not long after that, uh, age 23, you uh, published your first book, Essays in Love, uh, which was extraordinarily successful. How does that early success, uh, the sort of uh, uh, Gore, Gore Vidal, Joseph Hello kind of uh, early, early success uh, shape you? Um, look, I felt very, very lucky because I think I was a guy with uh, still have very low self-confidence. And I think that early success just gave me enough encouragement to carry on. And um, I think that if, you know, if I had 10 years of rejection, I don't think I could have taken it psychologically. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I felt very lucky that, you know, also I didn't have, you know, success kind of built up relatively slowly. So I didn't find myself, you know, a star the next day. And, and, and for that, again, I'm very grateful. So, you know, it, 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 it was enough to keep me going, not too much to kind of kill me off or make it go to my head. So I, I feel very lucky with, with the way that thing, you know, that aspect of things has gone in my life. Did it help that your father wasn't that impressed by it? Uh, you know, he, he was very successful in, in, in business and, and to him, uh, your, your success wasn't, uh, uh, didn't blow him away. Uh, did, did, it bring, did that bring things into perspective for you? Um, I don't know. I mean, should we have psychoanalysis live on air? Um, <laughs> Please. I mean, my relationship with my father, you know, bless him. He was a, a, a you know, wonderful man in many ways, but, but he was tricky to have as a father. So, um, you know, some of your listeners will have tricky father-son relationships and I'm automatically friends with them because I think anyone who's had a bad relationship with their father kind of, even though the father might've been very different, you're always in the same, you've got many of the same issues. So I'm one of those people. And it gives you all, you know, it gives you a, a special subsection of problems um, all to yourself. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I was trying to prove myself. I loved him. I hated him. I wanted him to love me. I wanted him to notice me, you know, all these, all these sort of dynamics. Um, and what can I say? Um, I think that it was difficult for me to get to a stage where I felt that I'd met his expectations. And um then life moved on. He died. My expectations changed. And broadly speaking, I'm over that now. And, you know, I, I, I lead my own life. But for a while, you know, it was touch and go psychologically. It was it was, um, you know, it was, it was a challenge to um, to meet the expectations I'd been brought up with. One of the uh, perennial themes in your writing is uh, is love, and uh, uh, you have a, a concept that uh, uh, romance ruins love. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's one of the big things that we teach at the School of Life, how relationships can work. And a lot of the distress in people's emotional life is around love. You know, next, next to work, it's probably the most problematic area. And um, one of the really weird things about 
relationships is that the way that we love as adults sits on top of um, experiences that we've had as children about love. So, so in a way, adult love is, is a process of refinding love as opposed to merely just falling in love. We're often not conscious of it, but we make pretty particular choices. You know, one of the big generalizations of love is you can't fall in love with just anyone, you know, and, and, and nor is one just looking for somebody kind of beautiful, kind and healthy. That's not, that's not, that's too simple. Um, often what we're looking to do is to recreate some of the atmosphere of love that we knew as children. Um, and that may have been associated with all kinds of weird, um, well, to put it bluntly, suffering, kinds of suffering. And sometimes we reject candidates in, in later life um, for the simple reason that they threaten to love us kindly and reliably, which doesn't feel like love to us because that's not the way love felt in childhood. Um, so that's why you feel you, that's why you see so many people going from relationship to unhappy relationship to unhappy relationship. And, and these people have a, a, a knack for skirting real kindness um, because it just feels too unfamiliar and undeserved. So that's very, very sad. Um, um, you know, we live in a romantic culture that teaches us not to investigate love too much. We're taught very much to go with our feelings. And when people say things like, you know, I met this person in a bar, I've got such strong feelings, we're going to get married in two weeks. This is declared very romantic. And it's nothing of the sort. It's just crazy. Um, because our, our impulses are like As our ancestors would have thought through much of human history, right? I mean, this idea that you clap eyes on someone and then choose to make a life with them is, is as you point out, very uh, comparatively recent in the broad sweep of human history. That's right. It's, it's recent and, and slightly reckless. Now, of course, there were lots of unhappy arranged marriages in history, too. Um, don't get me wrong. But I think that um, this notion that our emotions always guide us to the best thing is, is a real problem. And, th you know, this is a really big issue at the School of Life. We're, we're built, really, in this sense, on a psychological, psychotherapeutic slash philosophical foundation, whereby we think the untrained and unexamined emotion is, is a dangerous thing. So when people say things like, you know, just go with your feelings, we say, no, stop, examine your feelings, try and understand them. Where are they coming from? Maybe they're not reliable. You know, maybe we can't trust our feelings. You're, uh, you're pretty critical of uh, crushes and, uh, and the, uh, the outsized role that crushes play in, uh, in romance uh, uh, novels such as Madame Bovary. Well, um, don't get me wrong. I mean, I understand the pull of, of crushes. We all feel crushes all the time. You know, we're, we're very, um, very easily susceptible to, to, to imagining perfect strangers. Um, that's just the way our minds work. But I think we have to be, you know, humorously, kindly, generously sceptical of these feelings in ourselves and, and watch what we're doing with them, because it's much easier to hallucinate the answer rather than actually find it. Um, and I think the crush is is a kind of uh, a small but intense example of the romantic culture we live in that's constantly encouraging us to believe that there are, you know, total, complete answers waiting for us um, in our emotional lives and that we don't have to we don't have to understand ourselves or work with a partner to try and make love grow, that love is just just this thing that that you just washes over you, um, but that's really not not quite true. And so, so the school of life is founded on this idea that love is a skill, not an emotion, and that it's a skill that you can slowly and painfully acquire. 
it's not ready-made. So as an economist, I'll uh, often uh, characterise this argument as being that uh, uh, love is more manufacturing than mining. Uh, <laughs> what is it that, uh, that you teach at the School of Life to, uh, to people who are trying to, uh, to, to build that, relation, that, that stronger relationship to, uh, uh, to strengthen a marriage, for example? Well, um, you know, in a way, what we're trying to teach often is self-understanding, understanding of the other person. I mean, it's very easy to be angry with other people, particularly our partners, for not understanding, for not seeing things our way, etc. One of the things we're very reluctant to do is to communicate. We often sulk in relationships. And the sulk is an interesting one, because really what it means is that you hope to be understood by somebody without bothering to actually explain what's wrong. And this is a very, very childlike, and it genuinely has its origins in childhood, this notion that, that the person who loves us should interpret us. They shouldn't listen to us. They should interpret us and work out the answer. And it, it, it's a beautiful dream, but it's really a dangerous one because no one can be expected to understand anyone else wordlessly and magically. Um, we have to explain, and we can't hold it against people if they don't guess our moods and our intentions. So learning to explain and learning to see that explaining is not an insult is an important part of it. Another thing that we teach is that trying to teach your partner something is, and indeed to learn something from them, is not contrary to the spirit of love. Um, one of the very unfortunate war cries of partners in trouble is, love me for who I am. Well, that's a disaster. Why would anyone love you for who you are? <laughs> no one deserves to be loved for just who they are. Well, they deserve to be forgiven, but not loved. Um, you know, we all need to change and evolve into more love-worthy people every day of our lives. Um, and so we need modesty here. We need, we need to be able to say, there might be things that the other person can teach you. Um, and there might be things that I need to learn. So love is a classroom. You know, that's what Plato saw it as. Plato thought that love was literally a learning experience. That's the point of it. Um, that sounds super unromantic in our modern culture. Like yeah, the notion that kind of we're getting into a relationship in order to learn. That sounds really weird. But like many things that sound unromantic, they're actually very sensible. And if that is a general rule for your listeners, anytime you come across something that sounds unromantic, it's probably a really good idea. Uh, and every time something sounds really romantic, it's probably a bad idea. It's just a good rule of thumb. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so, so that's what we teach. Um, another, another really good tool for patients is understanding that all a person's strengths, all the things that attract us in a person, the things we find strong, are related to a weakness somewhere in their character. So the person who's you know, incredibly creative is also likely to be maybe very messy, or the person who's fantastically well-organized might be at points dogmatic. And these are the, the bad sides of good qualities. Very often when we're angry with our partners or, or just friends or other people, we, we, we tend to lock on to the weaknesses and, and, and we literally ask ourselves, how did this person ever enter my life? Like, what am I doing with this idiot? And it's at that point, it's very important to understand that A, they're not an idiot. B, there were very strong reasons why you got together with this person related to their strengths. It's just that their strengths, like everybody's character, are connected up with weaknesses. And it's good to bear the links in mind at moments when we're encountering the weaknesses in a particularly acute way. 
My parents uh, commemorated their uh, 50th wedding anniversary this year and it was interesting speaking with them about the sorts of people that they were in uh, 1969 when they were first married. Uh, and it's, there is, it, there's such different... You are, you are such a different person uh, when uh, 50 years into, into a relationship that if you don't do the sort of growing that you're talking about, it's almost inconceivable that two human beings would stay together. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I accept. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to call it a day and, and it's not it doesn't have to be a tragedy either. So I'm not, you know, not somebody who believes that couples have to stay together forever. Um, however, it's it's definitely worth seriously investigating the reasons why some uh, situation might have grown untenable and, um, and, and, and trying to do everything one can, particularly if there are children and others involved, and um, you know resolve differences but but as I say it, it may not be possible and you know some of your listeners out there will will have you know for justifiable reasons walked away from a relationship uh, it's interesting you've come uh, at a couple of points in our conversation to uh, to you know, uh, how childhood shapes us uh, sort of what we think of classically as a sort of quite a Freudian frame um, do you think of yourself as coming from that uh, that tradition very much so. And, you know, and again, there's a sort of a myth out there that Freud was wrong and that the whole, you know, the whole Freudian thing is, is ridiculous. And actually, it's not all about your childhood. The bad news for anyone who, who likes that line is it's not true at all. Um, of course, Freud got a thousand things wrong. But the basic insight, which indeed is not entirely just his insight, it's an insight that people have had for, for a long time, many different people, is that the way we function as adults emotionally sits on a superstructure or substructure that was formed in childhood. I mean, that is just incontestable. And therefore, many of the dynamics that we're engaged in in adulthood, if you seek to understand them, you will have to go backwards and you'll have to ask yourself, where did I learn about trust? Where did I learn about negotiation? Where did I learn about what my value is to other people, etc.? And there are answers almost always in the early years, between zero and 10. Um, and if we're trying to free ourselves from certain feelings, let's say we're trying to change, um, one of the best ways to change is to go back, understand where a story came from and seek to change that story. Because what happens in childhood is that we're at the hands of people with a huge influence on us who are nevertheless just ordinary human beings. And sometimes their assessment of us and their, the way they set up our expectations is, is quite seriously skewed and biased in, in really unfortunate ways. So there will be people who grow up, you know, a, a sizable chunk of your audience right now will have grown up with the sense that they are not particularly good, interesting or lovable people. They will be sufferers from low self-esteem. And low self-esteem is always an internalization of the esteem with which we were held by other people in our early years. And we tend to forget those other people in our early years or stop blaming them or just don't think about them. But the imprint is like it's like a, uh, the shape of a, a, a cookie mold on, in dough. You may not know the shape of the, uh, of, of the actual mold, but you know the imprint that is left on your character because every day when you wake up, you think, you know, I'm a piece of nothing and my life is worthless. And, you know, that those, those voices didn't come from nowhere. They were the voices of somebody else that were internalized. Um, and so we have to do some very patient excavation and test our inner voices with the voice of reality. You know, we do a lot of what psychotherapists call transference. And transference is the transfer of an emotion 
that was generated in our early years in a particular context and is the imposition of that narrative onto the modern world, the, the, the adult world, in places where it doesn't necessarily belong. So a sort of classic example is, you know, you're at work with somebody, let's say you're managing somebody at work, and you say to them, um, you know, look, I really like your piece of work, but um, I wonder if you could just at the end add an, another paragraph, because, uh, you know, then it will be better. And they flare up and they go, why do you never respect me? And you go, whoa, mm. wow, I, 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 I do, res- I, just, I just think we need to change. And they go, I can never do anything right, can I? And they storm out of the room right now. What's going on there? Um, first of all, it's showing us that places, uh, problems in the workplace. And this is a big thing that we do at School of Life are emotional problems as much as they ever are technical problems. Um, we bring a lot of our characters to work that were formed in, you know, in our early years. Um, and and but, but what's often going on there is that somebody is carrying around with them a sense that they're under attack all the time by people. Um, and that these and that and that somebody is um, not interested in their, you know, well-being and survival. And so, whenever somebody in the modern adult contemporary world comes along and says something, you know, like, "Hey, do this," or "What have you thought about it this way?" They're not hearing reality like other people. They're hearing, "You're a worthless idiot," and I don't believe that you deserve to exist. And so, no wonder they flare up and go, "Hang on a minute." So, a so-called defensive person is somebody who reads attack everywhere. And the reason they read attack everywhere is that they were attacked very severely at a time before they understood how to master the situation and when the tools at their disposal were really primitive. All they knew what to do was to punch back. And what you have to try and tell these people is, the past is the past, the present is the present. You have to separate out the two. Um, And in a way, feel sad for yourself that you learned to punch back with such viciousness, but see that that isn't necessary in in the modern world because because you're an adult, um, and and that's all belongs to the painful job of maturity to be able to unstick the past from the present and to put emotions, if you like, where they belong. Um, no longer to get angry with your boss when really you were enraged with your father. No longer, and I know it sounds simplistic, but some of the rules, some of the ways in which our psyches work are, at least in their structure, quite simple, easy to understand, and nevertheless, they can ruin our lives. You have a, a section of uh, your new book which talks about uh, the self-help genre, and um, I know in the past uh, you've uh, you've distinguished between what you do and uh, and what people like uh, Tony Robbins do. Uh, let me read you uh, one of. Uh, your favourite Tony Robbins quotes, and uh, and you can uh, you you, you can uh, tell me your reflections on it. Tony Robbins writes, "I discovered my power and used it to take back control of my physical well-being. I permanently rid myself of 38 pounds of debilitating fat. Through this weight loss, I attracted the woman of my dreams. I then married her, and shortly after, created the family I'd long desired. I used my power to change my income from subsistence level to over 20 million dollars a year." This moved me from a tiny apartment where I'd been washing my dishes in a bathtub because there was no kitchen to my family's current home, the Del Mar Castle, worth $65 million. Well, so that's a, uh, an approach that uh, Tony uh, proposes, which uh, allows us to uh, step beyond the constraints of, uh, of, of our childhood. What's wrong with that? Um, look, I think that passage, though very well-meaning, is humiliating for a lot of people because it ramps up the pressure almost unbearably. 
uh, on people. Um, you know, I believe that change is possible. I believe that, you know, you can move through problems, etc. Do I believe that everybody's capable of, you know, uh, or indeed should amass a fortune um, and, um, you know, and, and imitate the career path of Anthony Robbins? I, I don't think that's necessary or important or indeed sane. So um, I think that the notion that we can make our lives totally perfect is in itself a rather imperfect and cruel philosophy. And I think that part of what makes American life difficult is, is that Americans believe in the perfectibility of human nature. Um, and they get very, very intolerant whenever they come across evidence of uh, that not really being the case. It, it, it's, a, it's a breeding ground for intolerance. So at the School of Life, we're very careful that we are a self-help organization to say no life is ever perfect. Um, unhappiness will stalk us forever. A certain incompleteness is normal. Melancholy is part of the deal. Um, these are not messages of defeat. They're messages of compromise with reality, which we all need to do in order to have a sane life. And so it, it seems important to, I'm not just being a gloomy English guy, it's important to have a philosophy that, that, that correctly adjusts itself to, to reality. I uh, played my 12-year-old your, uh, your sermon on pessimism last night uh, because I thought it would, uh, would help him uh, put some of his, uh, his school issues into, uh, into better perspective. Uh, it's a lovely, uh, lovely talk drawing on the, uh, on the Stoics to, uh, to think about uh, what it is to, to have a little bit of dark in a good life. Yes, I mean, look, you know, the Stoics are a fantastic group of philosophers from ancient Greece and Rome. And one of the things that they have to remind us is that um, a lot of your happiness or unhappiness in life is dependent on your expectations, on, on what, what you think is normal. And, and very often our sense of normality is has been kind of played around with and is deeply unrealistic. Um, and so you know, a lot of anger is, is a result of a frustration that we haven't budgeted for and that we don't think is in some ways normal. So think of the guy who, who shouts every time they get into a, 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 a bit of traffic on the way to the airport. You know, they're screaming away because they're somehow imagining a world in which the roads are mysteriously traffic free. And whoever gave them that promise, or if you shout every time you lose the house keys, you, you, you know, you're, you're basically suggesting that house keys never go astray. That's not the reality that was promised to you. So there's a lot of misplaced anger because there's a lot of expectations out there that are not quite right. So, so broadening our picture of reality, you know, that um, our life is not endless, that um, uh, everyone we love will frustrate us, um, that our children will, you know, need to disrespect us at a certain stage in order to develop the energy to eventually leave us and start a life of their own, that this is all part of reality and, and therefore not something to kick against in a kind of ill-tempered way. You've, you're one of the most sophisticated thinkers about the role of uh, religion uh, coming from the standpoint of an atheist uh, and your, your uh, book in, uh, in praise of religion uh, makes the points that uh, uh, sometimes what we need isn't the latest and deepest philosophical insight but to be reminded of simple truths about how to live well. Uh, how is... Uh, uh, religion for atheists, has the process of writing religion for atheists um, shaped how you engage with, uh, with, with organised religion and, and with critics of organised religion like uh, Richard Dawkins? 
Yeah. So look, I, I'm a I'm an atheist. I'm a secular person. Religion's never never been something that I've practiced or, or been drawn to. Nevertheless, um, and I came at this really through psychology rather than an interest in in religion. I can't help but observe that a lot of what makes modern life difficult for people are things that are missing that religions used to be quite good at doing. And I mean by that things like um, reminding us of our of the importance of community and binding us together around the shared admission of fear and vulnerability and dependence. You know, that's disappeared. We live in fiercely individualistic times where it's, you know, yourself and your career and your love life. That's what matters, very narrowly defined. Um, uh, I also think that religions were very good at putting us in touch, and I'm going to use a fancy word, the transcendent, putting us in touch with the transcendent. In other words, things that transcend human beings that are bigger, older, wiser, nobler, more dignified. They regularly put us in touch with that in order to, in the process, what happened is that we were relativized. Um, so that human, the human world was seen to, to coexist uh, among, you know, the world of, of divine forces, which was infinitely more magisterial, more impressive than anything that humans could come up with. We, we now live in a very much a human-made world, and we see ourselves as the measure of all things. And that drives us mad because we're all jostling and competing and, and, and trying to assert ourselves in this sort of human anthill without taking a step back and going, you know, we, we do live under a broader cosmos. I should say that's part of the reason why people nowadays value nature so much and the experience of the natural world, because I think people get a little bit of what used to be available, uh, you know, within religion, which is this this experience of something larger, more mysterious, um, or inspiring. We, if you want to put it like this, Andrew, we, we we need to be able to meet, we need to be able to feel small every now and then, not to be made to feel small by another human being, because that's quite unpleasant, but to be made to feel small within the larger order of the cosmos. And we don't do that very often. And, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, news. Uh, you know, we're constantly being told to keep up with the news. And the news is always, you know, the achievement or some horror story of another human being somewhere on, on Earth. And what we don't hear enough of is, the news either from things that transcend us or the news from inside our own hearts. And a lot of what we need reminding of are not strange esoteric things from the other side of the world. It's it's really truths that are, we've allowed to go dead inside our own minds, but that are very important. Things like, you know, your life is short. What are your priorities? Um, you know, what is important to you? To, to learn to, to value our, our, our own kind of knowledge and insights. Um, it's striking to me always how seldom most people spend um, time on their own. You know, we do everything other than spend time in our own minds. Even if we're alone, we get, you know, distracted by the phone or by um, uh, something. But but we very rarely interrogate and make friends with our own thoughts, largely because those thoughts are often quite scary. But but we should. It's it's really important. It's so, so useful. I want to come to the news in a moment, but uh, first, before we leave religion, you have uh, some fascinating insights on a number of religious traditions, uh, fasting, pilgrim pilgrimages, uh, confessions. Uh, how do you think some of these uh, religious traditions can be part of a good life for a non-believer? Um, I think, you know, the fact that religions did certain of these things should always set us thinking, like, what were they after you know take a lot of the religions of the east 
um, we're very interested in getting us to sit in a certain position, breathe in a certain way, and have a cup of tea. Um, and that's kind of <laughs> like, that's that's kind of odd. Like, why is that? So they knew something that we've allowed to slip through our culture. They knew that the body and its posture is hugely important to the contents of your mind and the, and the outlook of your mind. And, and ditto with with breathing. And that food and drink has a role to play again in shaping uh, uh, your world. Um, religions knew that um, a journey in the outer world can be very important to spurring a journey in the inner world and cementing a journey in the inner world. Uh, and that's what the whole notion of a pilgrimage was. It was precisely, a, you, know, you needed to move forward inside. So you, 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 know, you orchestrated a journey outside to do that. We're not so clear about what we're trying to do. Um, with many of our outer journeys, you know, you, you don't get asked at the Qantas desk, you know, how you're tending to move your life um, by, by, by heading off to Europe or something. And yet maybe that should precisely be what we keep in mind as we, you know, write our journal on the long flight over. Um, so, you know, and, and, and also religions are very good at bringing people together and, and at breaking the barriers down um, between strangers um, Nowadays, you know, we constantly hear that, you know, Sydney and Melbourne might have a, a vibrant nightlife. But what does that mean? We don't meet strangers. People don't talk to each other in the large cities of the modern world. Um, we may go to a bar, but the chances of striking up a conversation and really opening our hearts to a stranger are, are slim. We don't know. We live in a lonely world. We have built a very lonely world, even without realizing it. And, um, and again, looking at how religions function can just alert us to some of our forgotten needs. And the answer isn't to go back to religion. I think it's to learn from religion and invest some of the lessons of religion in the secular world. Yes, I'm often struck by uh, what you can achieve if you're speaking to a large group of people and you give them a moment to introduce themselves to somebody they haven't met before. And the odds are that they would have otherwise walked out of that room without ever meeting a new person. Uh, and so you can fundamentally change their experience of being in that room uh, by that simple simple act. Uh, but it's entirely a, a religious tradition uh, to, uh, to that moment in church when the, the minister says, now turn to the person next to you and say, peace be with you. And, uh, and everybody uh, chats to somebody new. Now, at the School of Life, just to frighten you, um, at the School of Life, we do a version of this, but we take it one step further. We say... Um, explain to a stranger one thing that is troubling you, that is making you sad, mm. that you regret or are ashamed of, something. Um, and, you know, so often in life, we imagine that what will win us friends is to be impressive and to be, you know, fantastic and flawless and achieving things. What we don't realize is that the only way really in which humans bind themselves together is by a revelation of their mutual dependence, vulnerability and fragility. And, you know, what makes you friendly with somebody ultimately is always when you dare to make yourself vulnerable and it feels dangerous. And in a way, in a sense, it is dangerous, but but it's it's the only way if we're not going to be alone. That's the way that friendship begins. Um, and so we like to create a kind of safe space where that is done and almost kind of mandated. And the results are Beautiful. Now, perhaps your most prescient book was uh, the 2014 book, uh, The News User's, User's Manual, uh, published uh, full two years before Donald Trump took the White House uh, and uh, managed to uh, blow out the news consumption of, uh, of every uh, hardline conservative and progressive on the planet. Uh, how should a thoughtful person build news consumption into their lives? Um, look, I think ultimately 
our primary responsibility are is to ourselves and those around us that we are able to have a massive impact on them. So I think that we should invest our curiosity and our energy um, you know, proportionate to our capacity to impact on people. So, you know, let me let me paint you a, a kind of um, a, a, a desperate portrait. Imagine a family where the two parents, um, let's say there are two parents in the house and they're very upset about Brexit, let's say. So they're all um, lamenting how awful Brexit is and how terrible the rulers are and how awful everything is and how terrible it is. Meanwhile, they're neglecting two children who are full of curiosity, who are full of energy and insight and potential to shape the world, right? Now, I'd like to say to them, guys, weep about Brexit like the next person whenever you know you, you want to, but don't use this as an excuse for neglecting your own life or neglecting the responsibility you might have towards people around you. We are all capable of a massive impact. Um, and when we say things like, I'm powerless, I can't impact me, you know, yes, you're not the prime minister. Of course, you can't impact at a mass scale for that level. But there's all of us, even the so-called least powerful, have great power over, it could be over a parent or over a child or over a, a co-worker or over a friend. We all have a capacity to determine the lives of others in the way that a president might. Um, a president can do it, you know, times a million or times a hundred million, but we can all do it um, at lower but still real uh, increments. And we should use that power and not, not use the knowledge that we have of the problems of others and the dilemmas of others to distract us overly from uh, an engagement with, with the lives around us. And I think that's the danger of the news, that it makes us jumpy and sad about things which we simply cannot alter, and that is wasted energy. Conversely, how do you see us uh, being able to better incorporate music and art into a good life? Do you have tips as to how to uh, consume uh, art in particular, which I think is uh, many many of us find a little daunting? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we need to, to recognise is <clears throat> that art and culture are tools. They're not things that you need to pass an exam or to impress the neighbours or to sound fancy. They are tools, just like a, a saw or a hammer or a bucket is a tool. So art is a tool. Um, and you need those tools to solve certain problems um, at some points. Um, the, the way to think about art, for example, is that when you're a kid, you, uh, you know, your parents maybe at some stage say, you know, you can decorate your room. And you start looking around you and you go, OK, how can I decorate my room? And let's say you like horse riding. So you put a picture of a horse or you like uh, motorsport. So you put a picture of a Formula One car, whatever it is. But decorating the room is the beginning of your love of art, because what it's doing is showing you how pictures and objects can help to reinforce the things that you love most in life and in yourself. They are tools of self-definition and self-enhancement. Kind of and you might go, well, what on earth has that got to do with walking around the Louvre Museum when you go to Paris? Well, let me, let me explain. You know, our engagement with art in museums should follow exactly that pattern. We should be drawn and deepen our engagement with works of art that speak to us, um, and we should use them mercilessly. So let's imagine you see a picture of a field painted by some guy in the 19th century, right? Buy the postcard, and think about why you like it. And maybe you like it because it's reminding you of moments in your life, maybe straight after university, when you had time to engage with nature. Now, maybe you haven't, maybe you've drifted away, you're no longer quite that person, but something in that postcard 
bringing that mood back to life, right? My advice is that means that that work of art is capturing an important emotion, is bottling it as it were, and you need to put that postcard where it matters, maybe on your desk, maybe on the fridge door, wherever it is, as a constant call to be more the person that that work of art is inviting you to be. So I, I'm arguing for a very intimate relationship with, with works of art. These are not these are not distant grand objects that belong to kings and that's the end of the story. They're distant grand objects that you should use with the same level of kind of naturalness as a kid decorating their first bedroom. That, that's what works of culture are really all about. Do you think we should change the uh, the artworks on our walls uh, more frequently? I'm often struck by the fact that art that spoke to me when I first uh, first got it uh, no longer seems to have much of an impact on my soul six months on. Yeah, I mean, why not? You know, one of the great questions is, well, why are we drawn to certain works of art when we're drawn to them? And, you know, why do people have such different tastes in art? I think that our taste in art is a guide to what's missing from our lives. So if you have a very stressful life that's full of you know too many meetings and too much agitation you may be very drawn to some empty interiors or shots of you know a, a, a beautiful empty church in the morning or something like this um but let's say your life is i don't know too routine lacking in passion lacking in a certain intensity you may be drawn to some very vibrant um prints from you know peru or something because that's putting you in touch with an energy and a uh, you know, a kind of vibrancy that, that you need. Now, that may change over your life. You may no longer be, the things that are missing in us change over time, and therefore the works of art that are often the bearers of those missing ingredients may also legitimately need to change with time. And I have to ask you on the musical front, uh, what makes Peter Gabriel pop music for grown-ups? Um... What does make? I, I should explain that Peter Gabriel is someone who came to speak at the School of Life. We were very fortunate to host him a few years ago, and he spoke very uh, interestingly about all sorts of things. Um, um, look, I and the talk is uh, available on your website and highly recommended. That's right. That's right. Um, look, I think that he's somebody who's um, felt very deeply. He's suffered deeply, and he's felt very deeply. And I think that what we catch in his music is somebody who kind of understands pain, but is is ready to put that pain in a, a really broad and uplifting and consoling kind of context. Um, so, you know, if you think of that, that, that wonderful song, Don't Give Up, um, that he wrote many years ago now, but it's a beautiful song for anyone who's who's just maybe close to suicide, maybe close to despair. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's channeling a voice that maybe we're not capable of creating for ourselves at that time. We need it, but we don't know how to speak to ourselves in that moment. And it's at that moment that music can come along and say, I'm going to supplement that voice. I'm going to be that voice for you um, because our own capacities to generate a more optimistic and compassionate voice are, have run out of steam. Yes, I'd put Nick Cave in the same category of uh, a uh, singer who is just extraordinarily, has an extraordinary depth of lyricism. Definitely. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Elaine, how do you do your work? Do you have particular routines that, uh, that, that you employ as a writer? Do you have a special uh, uh, writer's garret? Uh, do you one of these people who has to get up, listen to certain pieces of music and do all your work between uh, 5 and, uh, and 6 a.m.? Uh, how, how do you do what you do so impressively? Well, I think that's a very good question. I think that, you know, ultimately I, I try and understand 
why I write. And the reason I write is to sort out ideas that uh, seem feel vital and emotionally rich to me at that time. And so one of the good things, if, I, if writing's not going well, rather than kind of force myself to, to keep doing that bit of writing, I'll often say to myself, what's actually really a problem now? And can I write about that? So I'll drop whatever I'm writing and, and start something new that's more closely aligned with what is actually paining or delighting me, because I think both pain and delight are the sources of um, of, of, of kind of motivation in, in writing. So um, writing is a desire to interpret emotions for me. And, and so it's just about trying to identify what the emotion is. And I think so-called writer's block is, is literally just a moment when you, you don't really understand yourself well enough. Maybe you're, you're trying to give birth to an idea, but it's not ready yet. It's not ready to come out. So you just maybe just got to wait or try and find something else that is, is nearer to gestation. Um, and, and I think if you're hitting the right spot, if you've identified the thing you're trying to work out, then then writing comes anywhere. You, you could be on the back of a bus. It could be the middle of the night and you're just writing on the back of an envelope. It, it doesn't matter. And, you know, just as so the setting doesn't matter. The context doesn't matter. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is, are you on a rich emotional? Have you hit a rich emotional seam um, inside you? And if you have, it's just going to work. And if you haven't, it's not going to work. So do you find you have long periods of fallow and then you hit the seam and, and you're just writing constantly for uh, for a number of days or weeks? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. It does work like that sometimes. Yep. Um, or or I've just learned to to drop things and move to other things. So often I have a lot of things on the go at the same time and, and, and something's just not ready. So I'm like a cook with many, many things on the hob and some some things may be ready in a year when I've sort of had further evolution. Um, Often books, you know, I was trying to write a book about religion for, for years. It, you know, it, it took 20 years kind of thing. So so the moment a book is written is is can be very far from the moment the first itch comes along. Can you share with us some of the things that are on the hobs at the moment? Um, yes. Well, I mean, so now I do a lot of my work via and through the Book of Life. Uh, sorry, the, book of life, the School of Life. We do have this thing called the Book of Life, uh, which is our, our kind of blog. But we also have a, a, now a, a little publishing uh, house called the School of Life Press. And we do a lot of books there. And so I've, um, I'm have i writing a cookbook. Isn't that strange? Um, uh, about food, food and ideas, uh, food and feeling, food and emotion. And really, it's about the body and and our, our, our relationship to it. So I'm having a, a great time with recipes and um, I'm putting that all together and it will be out um, in a few months, actually. It's not going to be not going to be too long till it's out. So that's that's the next project. And I also want to ask you about uh, responding to, uh, to to criticism. I know, you know there's a famous incident a decade ago when you wrote in response to a negative New York Times review, um, I will hate you till the day I die and wish you nothing but ill will in every career move you make. I thought the review was pretty unfair. I thought you were very gracious in apologising afterwards. But I'm curious what that incident taught you about how how to respond uh, when 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 we're attacked, with, with the benefit of a decade's hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, what you realise, of course, with social media is um, that you know something you do in five minutes, you know, is is going to be around forever. It's just you know, like people mention it when you die. Um, and, and it, you know, it's crazy because something that, you know, it's like, um, imagine if every conversation with your partner was being recorded and kind of broadcast and something you say, um, you know, the heat of the moment is, is kind of literally becomes 
immemorialized and, and seen as kind of the, uh, the essence of you. And it's, there's no point complaining about it. That's the way the world works. Um, so um, basically don't go anywhere near social media um, unless, unless you're really, you know, don't put anything down on a piece of paper, really, um, unless you're prepared to um, stand by that for years. It's a very hard rule to live by. And I think probably none of us uh, entirely do, but but it's a it's a chilling reminder of um, you know how you know digital footprints follow you around. Um, but um, to come to the broader question, broader point, I think that um, you know I, I I think it's it's impossible not to care what other people think and be a responsive human. Um, and the advice to people to like grow a thick skin is like how can you grow a thick skin and um, and do what you do. I mean, the reason why writers are all so thin-skinned is because that's what they get paid to do. They get paid to have gossamer mm. thin skins because how can you write well and and be an elephant? You can't. I mean, you, you know, it just doesn't go together. So I, I I think, you know, my advice to to people is, you know, hold on to your thin skin um, because it's, it's the result of, you know, we're talking about weaknesses and strengths. It, it's also plugged into some great things about you. However, be careful, you know, because um, people will use it against you. Uh, Elaine, you've uh, you've moved increasingly in recent years from being a writer to being uh, an entrepreneur and setting up the uh, the school of life. Uh, do you see that uh, that evolution as as continuing? Do you see yourself being much more a uh, a teacher and a manager in the decades to come than being a writer? Um, look, I'm, I'm always first and foremost a writer. The question is how I do it. And in recent years, uh, you know, I've had amazing fun um, putting together a, a fantastically talented group of people at School of Life. And we operate around the world. And these are great people. And they do a fantastic job. Broadly, it's psychotherapy. Broadly, that's what it is. It's um, helping people by sharing insights, talking to them, and helping them to move on in their lives. And I do a lot of the writing and intellectual work to, to get that ball rolling. Um, and, you know, it's fantastic. <clears throat> For me, it's a hugely creative way of life. Um, uh, I now write a lot of books, not under my own name, uh, but under the School of Life imprint. And it's liberated me to be unselfconscious and spontaneous and free in a way that it's sometimes hard to be if you're the only guy on stage. So I've enjoyed being, you know, I used to have a big ego, by which I really mean a small ego that was looking to get bigger. Um, and now, you know, I'm older and a little bit wiser and I don't really care. You know, I've, I've been on stage. Um, you know, I, I was at the Sydney Opera House, uh, I don't know, four years ago or something. And, um, and I remember coming off stage and I did something like four events in two days or something at the Sydney Opera House, um, sellout events. And it was an extraordinary honor and privilege. But I remember coming away thinking, right, I've done that. Um, I, I, you know, any narcissistic bit of me that needed the applause of, you know, wonderful strangers is, is exhausted. Um, I, I don't mind if I never see an audience member again. And that's not to be ungrateful. <laughs> It's not to be ungrateful. It's just, you know, I moved on. I, I, I outgrew that. And, but that's not who I was when I was a younger person. I, I was a very, when I was younger, I, I needed applause. I needed to, you know, get a sense of, um, you know, the, the, the love of strangers. I, I don't feel the need uh, for that anymore. Indeed, I, I love being a, a much more private person now. Um, and so, you know, I love working with colleagues at the School of Life, putting together um, a really fascinating and interesting uh, program and um, and you know I hope hope it can continue. Elaine, what advice would you give to your teenage self? 
to my teenage self, uh, calm down. Um, it, it might be okay. And even if it's not, um, it'll be okay anyway. Um, uh, there'll be time to get the stuff done that you want to do. Um, and um, it, like yourself a bit more. That's what I would have said. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, what did I used to believe? Um, that, um, that one had to be worried about everything all the time. And I don't oh. necessarily believe that's true. Um, what, what shifted your view on that one? I think I, I came to understand that I was brought up in an atmosphere of catastrophe. Um, and I came to realize <laughs> that that atmosphere was not necessarily necessary. Um, and that the whole point of being an adult is you can deal with catastrophe. It's not that catastrophes don't happen to adults, of course they do, but that you can, you can deal with it. Um, so I think I learned to be a bit more resilient. Um, resilience was lacking. Um, you know, babies, one of, the, uh, one of the things that good parents do with their kids is soothe them, you know, babies. When, when a baby's screaming and it seems like the world is collapsing, the baby will be soothed and will learn a hugely important lesson about life. And I think that um, probably a lot of us, maybe a whole society needs soothing, um, and to be told that, you know, it can be okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get through this. And even if we don't, that'll be okay too. Um, and and we, we, we lack that soothing voice. And um, it's something that feels very important to me um, and something I've, I've tried to correct in my own um, work and life. Hmm. When are you most happy? Um, I'm most happy when I understand something new that was puzzling me and that suddenly becomes clear. That's gold dust for me. That's so exciting. And something previously dark is, is, uh, is, uh, uh, opens itself up. That could be in the course of writing, but it could also be with, with somebody else. You know, if I'm, if I'm in a conversation with a friend and, or even a stranger, and suddenly something becomes clear, it's a beautiful moment. That's, yeah. So connection and understanding are for me the real luxuries of life. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, use up massive amounts of empty time, so-called empty time. So free time, uh, time without commitments to other people is a vital part of my um, kind of mental hygiene. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, you know, like many people, I, I eat a bit too much. Um, so I, you know, I do love food. I love chocolate. Um, I love, you know, cakes and, um, and pastries and uh, these sort of things. And, um, working on the recipe book can't have helped. No, it can't have helped. No, no, it didn't. It didn't. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I do love these things. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, it's bad. <laughs> And finally, Elaine, uh, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Of living an ethical life? Um, well, living a thoughtful life. It's probably my friendship with a, a wonderful uh, Scottish-Australian colleague and best friend of mine called John Armstrong, who's based mm. in Tasmania. And um, he's part of the School of Life team, and we do a lot of our work together. And um, my friendship with him has been absolutely vital to um, giving me courage, giving me uh, support, but also opening my eyes to so many thoughts and, and ideas. So, um, you know, some of us are, are lucky in life to, to hit upon 
somebody who who really makes a big big difference and um the day i bumped into uh, in, into my friend john was was very much one of those alain de berton's new book is the school of life alain thanks so much for taking the time to appear on the good life podcast such a pleasure thank you thanks for listening to this week's episode of the good life if you enjoyed this conversation i reckon you'll love past interviews with julia gillard ronnie khan carl vine and martha nosbaum we appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, mainly because it really helps other people find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.